Hi, and welcome to Drinking with Creatives, where we drown journalists of responsibility in a pool of vodka. My name is Jeremy Berger, a filmmaker and senior editor. Each week I chat with a professional creative and we have a few drinks. First question, most important question, what are you drinking? Um, we're drinking a uh, very, very boring flavored water at the moment <laughs> um, because uh, we are still a little bit jet lagged after coming back from the States. So I don't dare touch alcohol because I'll just fall asleep. It does smell like Malibu though. Yeah, it does smell like Malibu. Yeah. And I've got like children's cups as well, like plastic children's cups. <laughs> Gorgeous. I'm drinking, uh, uh, I'm just a little bit above the boring on with you on that. I've got the uh, athletic brewing company Run Wild non-alcoholic IPA. It's two o'clock here on a Thursday. I, I I am a filthy degenerate, but not that much of a <laughs> filthy it's degenerate. Five, it's five p.m. somewhere in yeah, the world, so it's okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, also depending upon you know uh, any kind of like uh, you know, I'm 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 mostly German, so I like saying it's Oktoberfest somewhere. Um, <laughs> There's actually an Oktoberfest in a local village uh, nearby, yeah. about twenty minutes away from here, which uh, is a bit tenuous because they've got nothing to do with Germany. Yeah, but it's, uh, they've got one anyway. Oh, okay. Got nothing. They just like to get drunk. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Oh. That's the whole of the UK down to the I, I mean, I, I can I can respect it actually. I, I'm being <laughs> I want I you know it's funny. I'll, I'll I'll circle back to that. I've got a funny uh, story about uh, a brewery in the UK. Uh, but while we're getting started uh, drinking our non-alcoholic drinks, let's start off and please tell everyone uh, who you are and what you do. Great. Shall I kick off? You can kick off. Okay, I'm Katie McCullough. Uh, I am founder and uh, founder of Festival Formula, which is a festival strategy company. We help filmmakers navigate the worldwide circuit and get their films into festivals. So founder, but also festival strategist. And I've been doing it 18 years so far. I am Ian Bignall. I'm not the founder of Festival Formula, but I'm also a strategist um, and also Katie's partner, uh, in crime and in relationships in real life, yes. outside of work. And we're getting married at later on this year. Congratulations. And not be drinking too much water on that date, I assume. No, no, no it the would opposite. The, the opposite. opposite of water. Absolutely opposite. Excellent, excellent. Gasoline. So, <laughs> uh, tell me about Festival Formula. Uh, how did it start? Crikey. Um, so that would be my, my kind of backstory. Um, so I, my background is as a writer, kind of mm -hmm. mostly for kind of um, screen, TV, radio and uh, theatre. Um, and I was back in the day supposed to go into acting and last minute kind of changed all my university choices to writing. Um, I hated my degree. <laughs> um, so whilst being uh, taught script writing, we had to do work experience. Uh, so you have to go and, you know, work underneath somebody or kind of shadow them as some part of the industry. And I found a production company that's not too far from here, actually. So it was kind of 20 minutes drive from my house. And the first job they gave me was they gave me all of their short films that they'd made already. And there were a lot of comedies in there. And mm -hmm. they gave me their company credit card. And they said, can you put these into film festivals? So this was 18 years ago. So we had a lot less festivals. They were more expensive. People don't realise that. Without a box as well. Without a box was the prime <laughs> submission platform. Uh, also filling in everything by hand, kind of going to the post office and you know sending VHSs and DVDs across the world. 
uh, B2SPs as well for uh, deliverable. Um, and basically, through word of mouth, just had so many filmmakers say, how, how are you getting so many selections for your films? And they would always say, oh, it's Katie. So I ended up being this mythical unicorn that kind of got touted around and um, ended up looking after a lot of people's kind of uh, back catalogue for a number of years. And then I decided to knock the writing on the head because it doesn't pay that well. So uh, this, I thought, actually, I can make this into a company because I had just got so many requests. And um, yeah, and then 18 years later, we there's a team, it's a brand. Um, we travel a lot. We're kind of revered in the industry. Um, and yeah, I well, I love it. I hope you love it. But yeah, I love uh, it. Yes. <laughs> He's okay yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. He's on the fence. <laughs> I'll say yes, if that's the right answer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. correct. <laughs> But yeah, that, that's kind of how it came to be. And it's a very niche area, but it's really needed. And we've just found through traveling to festivals and meeting filmmakers all over that it, it, there's still a lot of education that needs to be done. Like even from, you know, what types of festivals there are and how strong is my film and eligibility criteria. So yeah, that's kind of how, how Festival Filmer came to be. Now you say it was needed. What was the need specifically? Can you go into that a little bit further? What was that? Sorry. If uh, what was the need that you were fulfilling? Festival formula. So basically, filmmakers generally will look to a festival circuit once they've made their film, predominantly short film, but also independent features. Mm. And the need was that filmmakers didn't quite know where their film could sit on a circuit. So what would often happen is. Filmmakers will know the big shiny festivals, the kind of creme de la creme, which are after very particular types of films. So very kind of highbrow or art house um, or just kind of, you know, strong content. And a lot of people will make, you know, sometimes a nice film. It doesn't necessarily mean it's got to go to South By or Sundance or, you know, Berlinale. So the need really was just kind of filmmakers being well, having their hand held and actually kind of say, this is where you need to go. This is more suited. Don't spend silly money here. Look at this festival. And part of the joy of our job is when we can take a filmmaker's budget and stretch it really far mm -hmm. and actually say to someone like your film, we found 40 plus festivals that we think you should submit to. Mm -hmm. And most of those festivals, the filmmaker won't have heard of or dealt with, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's actually about kind of tailoring it to the filmmaker and say, look, you're a filmmaker under 35, this festival has that as a requirement. So, you know, let's try there. Or, you know, this festival wants, you know, films about cars or driving or sports, you know, it's perfect for the film. So let's, let's look to those. So really it's about getting filmmakers to understand what makes their film their film and not seeing it as a kind of negative that they don't get into those big shiny festivals because sometimes it's just not right for that film. Now it's funny, to, to the best of my knowledge, and I could be completely wrong about this because I haven't been to college in 20 years, but I don't think it's, is it really part of, at least as far as you know, film school curriculum to even learn about the film festival world to begin with? Yes and no, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, you do get taught about it lightly um, and it depends on the lecturer and their experiences. 
um, some of their experiences might have been from 20 years yeah. ago as well. So it may not be the most up-to-date information uh, about how to approach the circuit. Um, you know, the old the old ideas of you have to know someone to get your film screened is very archaic and, and not true. Um, so we are brought in as like a third party to, to do talks and lectures to students and give them a, a fresh perspective of the circuit because we are on it and understand it uh, rather than uh, maybe some old information that needs to be kind of updated a little bit. Oh, massively, mm. massively. I mean, I, I think um, just off the back of what Ian said, it is it is down to the lecturer, but also a lot of film schools or education bodies that teach film mm -hmm. uh, will often have a section on distribution and mm -hmm. they'll say to a filmmaker that means festivals right now because obviously distribution is not sales for when you're working in that kind of confinement uh, which generally they just point them towards the BAFTA and the Academy list mm -hmm. which you know great festivals but not really suited for every single film and a very easy way of spending yeah. a lot of money very Silly quickly money. but um but yeah and we always laugh because whenever we get take, uh, like asked to go in and do a lecture um all the teachers are, are there at the front taking notes yeah no. kind of like oh i didn't know that and you're like it, it's there like yeah. i suppose it's about being reactive because the circuit changes so much i mean as i say doing 18 years and how many film festivals exist has changed how we send submissions to a festival has changed what they screen on and where they screen i guess that's changed. the problem as well because i kind of feel like maybe the lecturers don't think anything's changed. I think it's yeah. probably the same as it's always been because a film festival is a film festival. But even recently with the pandemic, you know, festivals had to change to survive. <laughs> so I think that like their information's always quite out of date because their origins were they probably were a filmmaker and they probably had a couple of films that had a, a couple of screenings here and there, but that's 20 <laughs> years ago. and you know whilst you can still tell a student how to make a film now um going on the circuit like it's a completely a completely different thing and like our company saying a film is not finished until it's seen it's actually really important to make sure that there is an audience because ultimately there's no point making a film yeah and we, we that's why we get a lot of return talking gigs at schools because mm -hmm. they they see the value in that having an external lecturer whose job it is, is purely to focus on the festival circuit worldwide is hugely beneficial to any student because they can only take it so far. And then a filmmaker will only know what they've researched, which generally there's no comprehensive list of festivals in the world online. You know, mm. you can look at Film Freeway, it doesn't have every single festival on it. You can look at a database, it's not going to have every festival. We are that comprehensive list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, that's ever expanding. Mm. You know, I think sometimes filmmakers are taught, well, it's part of my bugbear of the education system when it comes to filmmakers, that they are essentially fed this kind of line that, you know, you're not a big filmmaker unless you played at these big shiny festivals. So what mm. happens is filmmakers will spend their money and that's their intention and then they don't get in so what happens is it breeds this contempt and they kind of go the circuit's rigged you've got to know someone i'm wasting my money and that's when we step in and go no 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 there's plenty of festivals you're just aiming for the wrong ones and then they can kind of get this experience and sometimes a, a better experience at smaller festivals which then kicks them into gear and goes okay no there's a whole world out there i didn't know so 
it's and it's frustrating because it's kind of tied into funding opportunities and you know bursary schemes where the people that are holding the purse strings only know those big shiny festivals because mm. they haven't bothered to look further afield so it kind of just per- perpetuates this idea that you know you, you haven't made it unless you've you've hit those big festivals straight away and that's not always like one in a million chance it will happen um <laughs> you can't sustain it you can't you know every film that you make isn't always going to go straight to the top mm. wait you're saying i can't just graduate film school make a film and go directly to tribeca you're saying that doesn't what <laughs> well maybe well, if, if you had a gazillion million pounds yeah. so you could possibly do it that way but that would be very very unethical yeah <laughs> everyone uh, yeah everyone will have that oscar uh, and, I, and i'm not on. i'm not i'm not saying that tribeca except bribes either i'm just general, no. generally 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 saying that because this is my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've only been asked for a, for a bribe from them once it's fine um, <laughs> so let's talk for a second because you, you bring up a point and, and as we're discussing this there are more and more subjects i kind of want to jump into and divide and conquer but let's talk for a second about the truth behind uh the rejection letters that we get from film festivals oh, about yeah. sometimes that there's not enough room uh can you speak a little bit about that i mean it's kind of true um to a degree i think that if you're renting a space uh, or spaces uh, to run your film festival and you're renting it for a finite amount of time um, you can only program so many things um, so there is that kind of thing of like we've run out of space um, it changed and shifted a little bit during the pandemic because the difference was that during the pandemic they were going into an online virtual space so some festivals were able to make bigger uh bigger programs online mm-hmm. um so it was kind of a slightly different landscape but i think the whole rejection letter it's kind of i mean i don't we don't like to use we're trying to we're trying to change the word rejection to non-selection now because oh, effectively okay. it's a nicer way of digesting it because rejection just has such negative connotations because quite often a festival quite like your film even though they're saying no um it depends on what's being submitted around you um so space is a factor also it might be just that if you've got a body horror film and they're programming final girl horror films that you just totally weren't right for the festival that year you may have had a better film than the stuff that's being selected it's quite common to hear festival rejecting films that are stronger than some of the things that they're playing but they still got to curate a program so um rejection and non-selections is quite a complicated world but there is a truth behind this just not enough space but i, I guess also from a, a festival perspective that's quite a nice blast shield to hide behind to a degree as well yeah i, I will say our, our big kind of issue is actually kind of drilling down a bit further in its festivals that don't send out non-selection emails which is really crushing it can be crushing for a different reason for filmmakers because we've, we've had discussions before where a filmmaker will have their heart set on a particular festival and they'll keep messaging us kind of going have you heard from this yet have you heard from them yet and we have to keep saying no now we are in a fortunate uh, position unique position <laughs> that we look after a large slate of films so it means that we're possibly submitting more than one film to a particular festival so we will sometimes kind of go ah well we've had you know two selections for this festival and we're pretty far down the road because they've got all the materials so 
we can probably safely say to that filmmaker that they haven't been selected. Mm. Um, but it's not always the case because every festival will do it differently. So some festivals will have rolling selections. So they might select three films, but we've submitted 40, but they haven't finished the selection process yet. Mm. So what often happens is a filmmaker will have their heart set on a festival and the festival won't send out a non-selection email. Mm. And what will happen is their other filmmaker friends will then start posting, hey, I got into this festival, I'm really chuffed, I'm really thrilled, excited. And they suddenly go, well, I haven't even heard anything. So it's this weird false hope kind mm. of chasm that you fall into. And we kind of have to say, yeah, you haven't been selected. And, you know, we're, we're always griping at the festivals going, just, you know, if you've got enough, if you have enough people to watch the films, which they do, any decent, legit festival does, um, then you have enough people power to be able to send out a mail merger. Like it's yeah. not that hard, mm. but at the same time, it can go against you where a very well-known festival sent out a mail merger, a non-selection email and left all of the inserts blank, which oh. again is like a kick in the teeth. Cause it's oh. like, okay, so I got my rejection, but actually they didn't bother tailoring it. They couldn't even bother to kind of, you know, refine what their message was. So I think, festivals can still learn and they can still develop that kind of part of it but i think the problem is we spend a lot of time kind of managing expectations but also having to kind of say to a filmmaker repeatedly like absolutely repeatedly near enough week on week you're not a bad filmmaker because you didn't get selected mm. it's your film wasn't selected because it just didn't suit for what they needed right now mm. um and it's hard we know it's hard um but it's it's tough when a filmmaker is constantly using that as a gauge of, am I successful? Is my mm. film good? Cause it's, you know, it's tough, but also, you know, think about how many times you've gone onto a platform like Netflix or, you know, Hulu, and you've kind of ended up scrolling and you end up going, I don't want to watch that. Mm. It's the same thing. It's, but you know, that filmmaker isn't kind of suddenly going, Oh, that, that, that client didn't want to watch my film. That's really, really hard, but it's the same process. It's the same thing that it's just not everyone's taste. Um, and the circuit's the busiest it's ever been. Mm. Like anyone can make a film now on anything, like, you know, on an old phone. I mean, I can shoot into ProRes on my iPhone now. I mean, it's yeah. not that I want to shoot <laughs> with iPhone, <laughs> but like it, it is, it is hard. And yeah, I mean, it is as busy as it's ever been. I mean, pre-pandemic, Sundance, Sundance is having 15,000 submissions and 10,000 of those were shorts. And I program maybe 86, 87 shorts, which is like under 1%. So um, it is a numbers game. It's a bit like spread betting yeah. um, and understanding like what you're up against, but also understanding whether your film is something that actually the festival wants uh, <laughs> and that their audience is going to want to watch. So there's a number of factors because sometimes being honest with yourself as a filmmaker is quite hard. And I guess we're quite often the first port call for a filmmaker, uh, when they get their film into the into the big wide world, we're often the first set of eyes that mm -hmm. watch the film, mm -hmm. and it's and the first outside uh, feedback uh, about what makes the film good and the hurdles the film might have as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, understanding what you've got and where it can go, it can really really help you save money, basically. Yeah, yeah. Which at the end of the day that's what the main gripe of filmmakers is that they don't have a lot of money so where should they spend it 
for Wait, wine. independent filmmakers gripe about money? I know. <laughs> hey, sure. I'm uh, telling yeah. you. Well, let's also talk for a second because I also feel that there's a certain amount, there's a certain veil between the filmmaker and actual film festival selection process, and it is a process that you yeah. and I, I've 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 had it happen with me. Certainly, I'm sure many others have. You've witnessed this yourselves, where uh, people behind the scenes are actually rooting for your film, yeah. but you know, you pulled you know four straws, and the other guy pulled five, and that's yeah. just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the selection process is different for every festival. Mm. Um, it will start right down to, with small festivals where it might just be one person or a husband and wife that just like films and they'll watch everything themselves and they'll have different scoring systems. Some will grade it just on one score of, you know, if it's eight out of 10 and over, it's in consideration and that's it. Um, most festivals will have different categories like cinematography and you know execution narrative that kind of thing um, and as you work up and become a bigger and bigger festival they have more and more layers that the films get filtered through so you'll find that with the um, bigger festivals they'll have some pre-screeners mm -hmm. we often get called pre-screeners ourselves as a company with the films that we look after because the, the films we have are of a certain quality uh so we're kind of doing a bit of pre-screening in a weird way for a festival indirectly um and um what you'll find then is you might have to go through a couple of rounds of um of viewing to see whether it's the right sort of film for the festival and then ultimately uh, it will get through to the main programmers and they'll make those big decisions as they start to cut and curate the festival that they want to make and the program that they want to make. Um, and some festivals do it uh, the moment they open for submissions. Mm -hmm. uh, so you'll find that they'll be taking uh, a look at films straight away. Um, and they may be making in some, uh, some festivals decisions uh, from the get-go of like that's definitely in even though they're nowhere near closing uh, not that it's always an advantage for every festival it's not the case because everyone's different uh, but slam dance for example um, they will stay uh, open all the way through and then shut for submissions and that's when they watch the films they don't watch the films um, when the submissions windows are open so every festival is slightly different um, some totally fair like slam dance Others where, you know, it might be an advantage sometimes to get it in a bit earlier. Um, sometimes you might be submitting late and it's the ex exact little nugget they were looking for to round their program off. So it can work for and against you. There's no rhyme or reason to it, but we, the process is a pretty fair one. Yeah, we get asked a lot that question of, you know, does it does it benefit my film submitting to an earlier deadline? And it, like Ian said, it, it, it will vary. I mean, I always... Um, use the example as a bit of a red flag if the final deadline of a festival is exceptionally close to the notification date caveat i'll come back to that in a minute and then if that notification date is exceptionally close to the festival's running dates mm. then absolutely don't go for that final deadline because there is no point like you know if they would have they would have pretty much firmed up a lot of their program especially when it comes to features because they're gonna if it's a festival that requires premieres they're gonna have a discussion with you earlier on to figure out is this film best for us does it have the premier status that we need um 
But at the same time, we've had selections on early bird deadlines. We've had selections on extended deadlines. It really does come down to the festival in the film. But with the notification date, and realistically, this is only relevant to any listing that's on Film Freeway, or if a festival details on their own website when the notification date is, they are utilised very differently. Now, the platform Film Freeway, um, as a festival on there, requires you to list a notification date. You have to put one on there. Mm. Problem is, kind of going back to the idea of non-selection, um, some festivals will use that as a date to let all of the rejected filmmakers know. Mm. Some will use it as a date to let all the selected filmmakers know. And some festivals use it to let everyone know at the same time if they got in or not. Mm. And others, it's not a date that they stick to at all because it's just something that they have to put down. And a lot of them are sending out, um, you know, invitations for the film, probably like a month or two before the actual festival. So they can then kind of figure out that uh, that jigsaw puzzle of, okay, that film said no. So what other film did we like I mean, that could fit that and so on? I mean, Flickers uh, from the Islands, uh, for their festival, their notification date is way down the road. Yeah. Um, but they they announced their selections in waves and they're starting pretty soon uh, to announce the first batches of films that are into yeah. Flickers Rhode Island. Um, and that will continue until pretty much, uh, what, three, four weeks before the festival in August. So, you know, there'll be a rolling... Uh, you'll see online someone saying, oh, yeah, I've got into Flickers Road Island, and there'll be a lot of disgruntled filmmakers going, wait, I haven't heard. And you're like, yeah, yeah well, just sit tight, because you don't know. Might You might be next. Yeah. It's like, you know, that we know of one film that we've definitely got into that festival, but we've also submitted about 60 other clients that we oh. don't know yet. Mm. Um, but we're pretty confident we will, because we've got a really strong slate. But it's, it's definitely... It's a hard thing, because there's no one size fits all when it comes to festivals, which is what's quite frustrating. Mm. Um, because I think filmmakers, they may have a festival that they really, really love and they really kind of submit to over and over again when they work. It means that you get used to what their customs are and that what their process is. And then when you go to another festival, you suddenly go, oh, they do things very differently. Mm. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But every festival is I mean, wildly different. As a, as a filmmaker, never be too hard on a festival if they are mm. making mistakes because they are human and they do make mistakes in the same way that filmmakers make mistakes as well so i just think that like it is a very human world but um they i guess you don't learn from your mistakes unless you make them so that's kind of i guess the same on both sides of the fence I have a few more questions about the actual film festival world, but before we get too into the weeds on it, I wanted to just take a quick moment and let everyone know what it was like to work with you uh, when their film comes out. So can you give me like a rundown, like somebody has their film, they approach you, uh, what happens from there? Okay, so um, anyone can submit a film to us um, and we watch every film for free and we give feedback for free. And we actually urge filmmakers to send stuff to us because not that we necessarily want money, we're here to help. Um, and at least if, you know, even if it's a, a couple of brief paragraphs just pointing you in the direction, the right direction, um, that can, maybe if the film's not tonally right for the festival circuit, it may save you a lot of money and heartache down the road. Um, so we are very honest. Um, we do say no to films. Um, but we will send you feedback, yes or no, regardless. 
Um, if it is a yes, uh, we'll urge you to have a video call with us. Um, and that is so we can have a chat further about the film um, and discuss where you think the film should be sitting, where we think the film should be sitting, and maybe trying to find a compromise. Or maybe you, you just want to be told, you know, exactly where the film needs to go because you don't have that expertise or that experience, and that's fine. Um, and then really from there, um, we have two services, a strategy service where we can make a film festival strategy for you as a blueprint for you to carry out um, and do all the submissions and all the acceptances along the way. And if you are new to filmmaking, it's a really good experience to get that under the belt at some point. Um, it is a bit of admin, but if you are admin junkies, it's quite satisfying as well. Um, and then um, we do a submission service as well, uh, which is more expensive. But um, what we do with the submission service is we do all the submissions for you, all the acceptances for you. We house all your film files digitally, easy for me to say. Um, and basically... All you have to do is show up to your film festivals when you get accepted down the road. So if you are pressed with time, um, it's a much better option to go with uh, because we can take all that admin out for you. But, you know, we have 18 years worth of experience doing this and um, we're able to maybe save you from making mistakes down the road. So getting in touch with us is quite easy. And to be honest with you, you know, if you email the company and you have a question that, you know, maybe you don't want to become a client, but you just want to know something about a festival or something, we're not like a closed book, like we will, it might be a very short email, but we'll be able to give you a straight answer. We're kind of, we're not the film festival for police, but we're not, we're, we are in that kind of weird ground between filmmaker and film festival. And we kind of know how it works yeah. out there. And every everyone who joins our slate, um gets that support on tap um so you know any of those festival requests that you don't know are real or decent and legit that's kind of where we come in to help and i think as well we we did a we very conscientiously made a massive change to our website which was basically allowing the films that we represent to be listed on there but also to detail all of the all of the festivals that they were selected by and the reason we wanted to do that is because we wanted to be very transparent about what we're looking after and where it's traveled. But we also want that traffic to go to those festivals as well. So that anyone on our website, if they wanted to look at a comedy film or they wanted to look at documentary, that even if they're not looking for our services, they can still see where a film has traveled, which will then help them in turn make the decisions about their own film and their mm. own circuit journey. And we've always been so incredibly passionate about um, championing filmmakers but also festivals because one can't exist without the other they kind of help each other in this kind of you know synergy vibe which you know that's why we're always keen to kind of quell any myths or you know highlight the good ones ignore the bad ones so we can kind of get people talking and and actually kind of sharing their work with each other symbiotic relationships i love it <laughs> now uh oh and to wrap this up uh if a filmmaker wants to find you they would go to uh, festivalformula.com there's a form on there or you can email directly through to info at festivalformula.com and i will recommend following any of our socials if you're on twitter facebook or instagram because we announce anyone who joins us late but we also announce where we're going if we're attending anywhere 
but we also announce every selection that a film has. So it actually is a good resource for a filmmaker perhaps looking to find out about new festivals, or also just to see what a particular festival's uh, taste is like, because normally we're getting more than one selection into a festival. So. And we're, we're also amazingly beautiful human beings, so you get to see our lovely faces travel around yeah. the world. Yeah. <laughs> glowing. They're team glowing. It's a requisite of joining the team. You have to be stunningly, amazingly beautiful. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Well, I'll just uh, take this application letter. And just... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, back to the film festival world, I want to put us into a bit of a, uh, shall we say, uh, abstract frame of thought. Uh -huh. Because, uh, you know, with your experience, and to a certain degree, I'm, I'm of a similar, uh, shall we say, uh, vintage. <laughs> and I'd like to take us back to before the pandemic. And I'd like to talk about the changes that you've seen in film festivals up until that point. Like what was, what's changed the most in that world? How has that world changed, et cetera, et cetera. But remember, this is all pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. I mean, pre-pandemic, the biggest change was uh, a big push for equality. Um, yeah. They're making sure that there was a parity, uh, this pledge that was made uh, that film festivals were trying to show as close to 50-50 male versus female directors at film festivals because there wasn't enough um, female representation on the circuit. Mm -hmm. And in the short world, that is improving, uh, although in the feature world, uh, there's, a, there's a, long, a long way to go before that corrects itself. But um, festivals were very aware of supporting not only the, the question of sex, but also and gender, but um also sexuality as well making sure the lgbtqi plus circuit was being supported um in the right ways and and by showcasing positive narratives and not just you know the horrible narratives that maybe that community are continually going through and maybe not wanting to watch so much again on the big screen mm -hmm. about celebrating the community but also the same with bipoc um the bipoc community um around the world and making sure that their stories are being told, whether it be indigenous, black, Asian narratives. There is a film festival for that, and there is categories for that to make sure that their stories are being heard as well. So I think the biggest push, um, I mean, actually, I remember speaking to uh, Encounters Film Festival, and uh, we know Rich Warren very, very well, and he's one of the programmers, as well as uh, the guy in charge. And he was saying that he was making a real big push to try and program films that hadn't been played as much. The quality still being there, but not just going on the bandwagon of playing what everyone else is playing because he wanted to have a unique program and champion different voices. So I think voices and representation was probably the biggest push uh, before the pandemic. Um, in terms of film festivals themselves, they were all largely the same thing, really. They were just, you know, these in-person events if you didn't make it you and couldn't attend in person it was kind of you missed an opportunity mm -hmm. um you weren't always involved in a q a you couldn't always do a pre-recorded um message um so you know it was kind of like you know if you snooze you lose kind of thing back then mm -hmm. and um i think um it was i i, th I think there was the the festival circuit was a uh, back then a, a par of machine that just kept on launching forward i mean um, you know, we had regular thing, uh, film showing in cinema and there was, you know, continuing support for people getting into theatres. So back then, 
things were good to a degree in terms of audiences, but the landscape of the films they were showing uh, was something they were definitely pushing for. Yeah, I mean, the two things kind of um, stick out for me, and they've actually kind of progressed or actually altered because of the pandemic. So before times, um, <laughs> festivals... And by the way, I like that now everyone in the world uses Mad Max lingo. Yeah, like you say yeah. the before times now, everybody knows what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry. fuel as well because no yeah, one's got any gas anymore. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, in the before times, we, we definitely saw um, uh, a positive change in North American festivals screening European content. And we kind of put that down to you know festivals wanting to offer their audiences stories that they didn't know of or hadn't heard of or cultures and narratives that perhaps they hadn't considered before and that's only ever increased um and i think you know for an audience um rocking up to their local you know amc or their local kind of independent um, but being able to see a story that they can only see at that festival, like, you know, a short, let's say like a short Serbian film that, you know, they would never have any other opportunity to see. That's exciting for an audience member and hell of exciting for a programmer because they get mm. to kind of put that unity together. So we've definitely seen before the pandemic an increase in North American festivals wanting European content and sometimes going as far as actually having a category that's labeled like foreign narratives or foreign films or international. But the other thing which has kind of changed um, for the better, pre-pandemic, uh, festivals were kind of in competition with each other. Mm. Um, even if they were in the same state or the same town what or city, mean, whatever. What do you mean kind of? They definitely they were. They were, they <laughs> were. Um, and it's understandable, like, you know, you're kind of vying for the same audience, but, you know, every festival is different with its programming choices and, you know, the demographic it hits. But what we've seen is actually everyone having a chair at the table, no matter how big they are or focused or, you know, how, how small they are, that they can actually sit around the table because of the pandemic, because they're all like, hey, we've never experienced a pandemic before, what do we do? Um, which meant that people have begun even more so to kind of connect with each other and work with each other and, and actually kind of reach out. And that's from the festival side of things, which a filmmaker might not necessarily be parried to. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're seeing festivals lending each other projectors or, you know, or, you know, screens for the drive-ins that they've got um, or actually kind of going, hey, we've got this educational program, you know, does anyone else want to use it? Mm -hmm. Which wasn't necessarily always the case before because everyone was a bit like tunnel vision like this is my festival this is my remit this is my audience mm. i just need to focus on that and because of everything that happened it has meant that people are beginning to share and share alike again there's still going to be festivals that are just a-holes but they're not <laughs> they're not going to be up for sharing but for for a a brief glimmer of a moment it gave festivals that perhaps you know hadn't considered that they could ask for help from a big big festival mm. suddenly could and then you know somebody was answering that call so well, that's a flip side of what was happening before and actually for the better yeah, in fact some of the bigger festivals have been taking advice of smaller festivals yeah. as well yeah, yeah. so it's uh, really yeah, yeah i mean we know of that firsthand so uh, we were privy to a lot of um festivals having discussions during the pandemic about what to do next and it was often 
the smaller first festivals because they had the space and maneuverability of a smaller festival to be able to make it more pliable um and to make it uh work and a lot of the bigger festivals were quite often asking questions of how did that work did this did, what did, yeah. what, what, does, what does this involve and and getting some pretty straight answers back and honest answers which was great um and they may not take that whole idea but they might take a snippet of an idea mm -hmm. and uh, and push it uh, on their on their larger festival because of course they have to make it work because when you have a big festival it's like a small city or a small town for like the duration of the festival so they can't afford to not make it um, make it work we had to we again because we're in this unique space of you know being between filmmaker and festival we had to spend a lot of our time um, actually telling festivals of different sizes and you know different parts of the world and just saying to them nobody knows what to do so there is no right or wrong right now but what you need to do is not be ashamed of saying that because no one knows mm -hmm. because we had to keep badgering people and kind of say like your audition is supposed to happen in four months time and obviously the world has gone to hell right now um but you need to tell your filmmakers even if you don't know what you're doing that's still something because mm. a lot of the festivals were so panicky and and kind of you know ashamed that they didn't have an answer it's like no one has an answer well, but they... at least if you just say we don't know what we're doing right now right. everyone will understand yeah um and it took a while for some festivals to kind of get to grips with that and we had some very you know tough conversations where we were like saying to people look i know the world is in a weird place right now but you've also taken the filmmakers money selected their film and then just have left them high and dry you need to be able to say to them even if it is we don't know what we're doing right now but we're postponing the festival for the interim that's something what's worse is that the world is going to hell and a filmmaker is just going wait that money that I'm slowly running out of because of you know layoffs and stuff <laughs> suddenly disappeared and I have nothing to show for it yeah. even though I got that selection so it was it was a tough learning curve but just nobody wanted to be that person that kind of had the hands up going we don't know I mean because... I, I also feel sorry for the festivals as well because in the in the history of film festivals since the early 1900s there's been no need for plan b you know no. they've always okay the world war uh, the first second world war happened but they still like they either stopped while the fighting was on and came back again like you know they they find a way and, and obviously in modern times there's there's been no need for plan b because obviously preparing for a pandemic isn't something you do every day um but now it's happened um it certainly has made sure there is a plan b if it were to happen again yeah and how are we coming to the other side of that now? Now that, you know, the pandemic is slowly becoming endemic and festivals are taking a look at in-person screenings again. Uh, you know, you talked briefly about the idea of, you know, a lesson maybe being that the rising tide, you know, the tide raises all ships, you know, and that a little bit of collaboration between smaller and larger festivals can be beneficial to all parties. Uh, but what do you predict for the next like three to five years? Like, is it getting back to business as normal or is that business completely done? I mean, I think it is getting back to business as normal, but I will say that some festivals are more tentative depending yeah. on the area they're from. And if they have like an older community around them, they have to be more sensible. We've been 
you know, even now we're still testing for some festivals to make sure that we, you know, we went to Palm Springs and we have to show that we've been vaccinated and that we were given a special wristband to wear for the whole duration of the festival, uh, which was lovely in a sweaty climate. Um, but it was, um, I, there are still rules in place and you probably will find that they will exist certainly for the majority of this year, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel there is a willingness on both festival and filmmaker part to get back um, a bit more like how we used to be, because I think during the pandemic, uh, the one thing that filmmakers really, really missed the most was networking, um, mm -hmm. because it was kind of, you know, you can't network um, in, in a group of people on Zoom, you know, when it's one at a time, it's too, it's too hard. So I think that filmmakers have really missed that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think off the back of that, the, the, a few things that have been improvements is certainly accessibility uh, for films. So uh, having subtitle files and uh, closed captions, um, festivals are demanding that more and more. And that's mm -hmm. right because some festivals are having a hybrid model as their plan for the foreseeable future. And, you know, that's important to have, but also, for the screenings to have subtitles, it's, you know, it's a nice thing to have to, to show that we are making sure everyone's being represented here. Um, so that, that's been a good positive as well. But I also think the other thing that's been great has been because everyone, you know, before pandemic happened, I think everyone was like, what Zoom? You know, they made, they had no idea what Zoom was. It's like, is that like Skype? You know, and like, and like, and, and now we all got Zoom and we really don't know how it works still because there's 50 million features the thing does. Um, and, you know, going on with no camera or mute is still happening, even though we use it every day of our lives. Mm. Um, the one thing that is good is that festivals are much more receptive of Q&As. Yeah. Before the pandemic, it was like, you have to attend to have a Q&A and that's it now they're much more receptive to doing like live phone-ins and pumping your face onto a big screen um, or doing a pre-record um, so you can still be involved uh, to a degree uh, part of the festival or uh, it might be that you know they're doing they're putting all the interviews in a like a database on their website that you can you can watch um, any of the interviews with the filmmakers at your leisure at home so there are more um, perks that have come off the back of this now that we've become uh, we've gone from being like a 1990s environment to right bang up to date now because of the pandemic. Yeah, um, I will say though we're we're still in the last 18 months, two years have been this transition of pivot, like going from an in-person to a virtual, and then a virtual to a hybrid, and we're still in a transition. And what I've had to keep saying to clients is, you know every festival is doing something very, very different. And some of them are playing it safe and they're still continuing to do virtual because they don't feel comfortable, they don't have the finances to kind of go back to in-person. If they're in an area where the numbers have gone up or the local regional council or board have decided that, you know, they're gonna put a quash on, on open venues and so on. So it's about that understanding that just because the festival that you went to before, there was no masks, no, no need to show proof of vaccination. It doesn't mean that the next festival is the same. So, you know, we've been to multiple festivals the last kind of few months. And if we look at somewhere like Mammoth Lakes that we went to, they were doing testing of every patron every 48 hours and you got a wristband to show when you were last tested. 
But then if we went to somewhere like Palm Springs, we had to show vaccination so we could get a wristband, but we also had to wear a mask inside the buildings and for any parties that we went to. So it's very different. I think filmmakers have to realise that it's not the same for everyone. So to be prepared for something different every time. And that's even down to how your film's being played. I mean, they have actually Palm Springs because the community is a bit older in places there. Um, they actually, they, they enforced um, that you were vaccinated and to wear face masks, but they actually did something that was quite clever as well. On top of that, which is that they didn't allow food and drink into the venue. So there yeah. was no way you could be seen taking your mask off uh, because the excuse of having food kind of blows the whole point yeah. out of having, you know, a mask on in the they first place. They were really hot on that as well. Like, and that was a decision and they explained that at the beginning of every screening, it was a decision made by the venue and the festival. So, you know, but then we've been to what we went to Tribeca where um, we didn't actually go to any of the screenings, but for the venues, for the parties that we went to, it wasn't enforced. It was kind of, you, know, you can, you can wear a mask if you want, but the mandate isn't there anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I think we went to Poppy Jasper in Gilroy. They just dropped the mask and mandate they just in dropped, California. Yeah, they just dropped the mask mandate and basically you're like, I... I don't feel like I have the ability to turn around to you and say, don't wear a mask, it's your right to wear a mask or not. So I think each festival had a different approach. Uh, we went to Seattle Film Festival that was spiking a little bit in Seattle. Yeah. We were told we to, had wear, to masks. wear masks. Yeah. So it kind of varies, but I mean, I think as long as you're respecting what the festival wants, because obviously if you don't, you won't be allowed in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing to remember is that every festival is really different, but also they're coming at it from a different place it's down to the festival like what they stipulate and sometimes they are governed by the region that they're in or or any kind of you know local mp or mayor that that's kind of decreed those those laws but it's um yeah just simple things like if you've been a filmmaker that has been experiencing the online aspect so you've been doing q a's or pre-records don't expect that every festival is still doing that because they might have gone back to being in person, which means that, you know, you can only do that if you're physically present. So it's weird because we've kind of, not that we've got used to a status quo the last 18 months, but we've kind of got to a point where we go, so this is what festivals look like now. Now I understand it. Now, I, now I've experienced it, or I'm about to experience it. But now we're kind of shifting out, which means that everything's changed again. Um, and you are getting a little bit of hesitancy where people who are perhaps used to being online are a bit like, oh, but I don't want to go back to in person because I don't want to spend money on travel or I've got a day job or I've got mm. childcare. You know, I like the fact that I could sit in front of my computer any time of night and be involved in a festival. So, but then on the flip side, we've got filmmakers going, I can't wait to be back in a room with strangers because <laughs> that's what I want. Um, so it's very it's very independent like individual to each filmmaker but also every festival um, and whether they decide to carry on with what they've been doing um, we're now at a stage where we've we're kind of getting festivals who have been um, virtual hybrid and then now going back to their first in person and some of them it's like gone straight from virtual to in person there's been no in between so <laughs> Again, it's almost like year one for every festival. Yeah, and it's actually terrifying as well for film festivals because they're like some a lot of festivals out there are finding that their attendance at the moment is like fifty percent down. Yeah, um, and it's it isn't just that festival; it's mirroring 
all around the world because there's just a reluctance to maybe go back into cinemas or the building that confidence back up. Um, but and and as Casey says, like the, a lot of festivals are are like year one festivals again. Like all of a sudden they've got to find funding from different places yeah. because the funding maybe that they got before isn't there because that you know went under for whatever reason. So it changed. It changes a lot of things, and um, it means that maybe the festivals are coming back in a light version of themselves before they come back full fat down the road like they were pre-pandemic there's a lot of experimentation um going on out there and they are making a lot of mistakes but they are required at the moment to take what is a very old archaic uh system that we've had for yeah decades and decades and decades and try and modernize it um, bring it up to date and make sure that it's working for all of the uh, uh, for their festival and all their filmmakers that plan to attend wonderful I for one can't wait to get back because having a bunch of drinks at an open bar is one thing having a bunch of drinks by yourself on a zoom that's just a little it's a little frowned upon um, touch I think- alcoholic-y uh, it's it's one of those things where I think well, at the beginning of the pandemic when I was attending film festivals virtually online with a drink in my hand I was a bit like this is quite weird but that never really changed <laughs> even towards <laughs> the end I was still like this is still quite weird like, I, I haven't been able to really kind of fully accept the the virtual space as much as some other people because I kind of feel like I don't know about you, but I felt like I was watching so much on a screen that I was just getting like film blindness by the end of it. I was just watching so much stuff and all of my life was going through a little laptop in front of me, whether it be doing talks, making strategies, doing research, you know, everything was done on the same thing in the same place on the same desk. And, you know, when you when you think about it, I mean, from my perspective, I was just talking to a wall most of the time. There's a wall behind my laptop, but it was just me talking to a wall for hours and hours and hours. Well, I'll tell you, I had uh, a bunch of work going on last summer and I, I from 630 in the morning till about seven o'clock at night, just working, working, working. One screen has all my uh, work up on it. The other screen has uh it wasn't Discord. It was that other one. Slack. Slack oh, was open yeah, yeah. and just people messaging me and then jumping onto video calls via Slack or via Zoom. And after about three weeks of it, I literally shut down for the night. And I was like, I don't even want to watch TV. I have been staring at nothing but glowing rectangles. Mm. For yeah, I mean, there, was a, there, was a, there was literally a point during the pandemic, and I think probably everyone went through this at some point where. I think I got to like Wednesday or Thursday, like, you know, over the hump of the week, but I didn't quite make it to the weekend where I was just a bit kind of like, I need to shut everything. I just can't do anything for a few days. I just need to not be looking at something. Yeah. That's okay. I mean, that's okay to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm freelance. I can, I can do what I want. I just don't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm, I'm a rarity. I mean, I, I kind of, I, I embraced it, but I think it's just because I knew I had to. Mm. Um, and we, you know, for our, our team, we all work remotely from home anyway. So the working from home thing didn't throw us through a loop. It mm. was what we did. And also we already had video calls with our clients all the time anyway. So again, nothing really changed, just the intensity yes. you know, of how many video calls we were doing. And, and again, like I've said this to the team and to Ian, like when you run your own company, you're prepared to do anything. 
at all hours of the night because it's your baby. Mm. And I think when when we we really increased our reach during the pandemic because I was moderating talks, the whole team were doing Q and A's for festivals. You know, we were a part of panels and doing you know strategies for festivals and uh, filmmakers across the world. So it kind of meant that our screen time was work. Like it was what we did. Like we literally switched it on in the morning um, and also dealing with different time zones. It just, you kind of get that adrenaline just to kind of go through. But I think I'm a rarity just cause I, I kind of just- I mean, work was also, a work was also, you know, as annoying as it was at some points, it was also a comfort at others because yeah. it meant I didn't have to watch the news. But also it meant, I mean, for, again, for a business owner, yeah. I was being able to pay the freelancers for the work they were doing in a time yeah. when everyone was getting furloughed or wasn't getting furloughed and was just being laid off. So, I, you yeah. know, I think it was a very, um, it was a very odd time. And we, we've all said it as a whole team, actually, that everyone, we were very fortunate as a company to be able to survive and actually thrive during the yeah. pandemic. And it wasn't, it wasn't kind of a cash grab of, of filmmakers' monies. It was actually kind of being able to support, nurture, and help those film festivals and filmmakers that everyone, when they talk about their, their pandemic time, was like, yeah, I wrote that book and I learned how to play guitar. And, you know, I went hiking in the mountains and we were like, we just, we were working. Well, we, had a, we, we were we had working a, the whole time. We had a team meeting right at the beginning of the pandemic and uh, <laughs> Casey basically just said like, I want us to be remembered for doing good things during the yeah. pandemic and not profiteering yeah. off, you know, making do have, have some some scheme where you know we're making a billion pounds. Um, I we we wanted to, to to actually be a port of good, you know, for our clients and for anyone that just had a question about what was going on and understanding is it worth going on the circuit now or not, or you know, should I sit on my film? So I think that we really helped with that and helped try and get the message out there that hey you know there is life out there and you know there are other filmmakers that maybe are sitting on their film so maybe it's a time to exploit that as well so mm. i think um there was a lot of really good things i'm quite proud of what we've done during yeah. the pandemic because we worked really hard to make sure that we did the best possible job that we could and decided what best time to do the, the rebrand oh yeah we rebranded everything so <laughs> we like literally like we were trying to, to on top of everything we were trying to break, we, were tr we were trying to break our, ourselves like go we spent we spent probably about what three four months just on the lo new logo alone rebrand um, new website a whole load of metadata i think if you but... if you look through our new website you'll find bits of mine and katie's blood on the website oh, the where, our, where, our, where, where, yeah, where our knuckles have been sort yeah. of grinded to the bone <laughs> but beneficial because yeah. obviously you know the new the new website is super sexy so oh, yeah. yes. i definitely recommend it make sure to go check that out everybody yeah Parting words of wisdom to filmmakers wanting to go to film festivals. Have business cards. And do it. Yeah, and match Don't think about it, go. And follow up on the uh, when you get given someone else's business card as yeah. well. The one thing I always say um, is that you don't have to be a selected filmmaker to attend a festival. Mm. You, you can be a filmmaker and go to a festival you got turned down by. I implore you to go to festivals you got turned down by if you can attend them. Um, mostly so you can see what 
pipped you to the post. And but also, also... Fil- filmmakers are super honest. Yeah, yeah. Like they will, they will tell you if they love or hate your film. But also, that's the same for you. You can tell a filmmaker if you love or hate their film because it's a weird thing when I when I give feedback on a film and I say I really didn't like that. They often a filmmaker will be really appreciative because it's a different perspective. Mm. So um, it's quite interesting what you can do. But I think that like, yeah, just attend festivals, be prepared to speak to people, be prepared to speak to people you don't want to talk to. <laughs> um, and Be prepared uh, to watch films you don't like. Yeah. Uh, always, always be prepared to go to the toilet if you want to get out of a conversation with someone you don't <laughs> like as well. Um, I but... will say just as a just as a caveat to what Ian said about going to festivals, bringing it back round to those non-selection emails, mm-hmm. you will find a lot of festivals will actually offer you a pass mm. if you were not selected because they were thankful that you chose their festival to submit your film to and they want to be able to come and welcome you. Like, you know, and it might be that you can then kind of see their program and go, ah, oh, yeah, now I get why they didn't pick my film, but now I know. Now, I will say that that works in your favor because if you take them up on that offer, they remember you. Mm. And when we were at Woods Hole, um, we met three filmmakers who took the festival up on that offer and they had a whale of a time because they got to attend the industry talks, they got to meet filmmakers, they got to chat to the programmers, they get to go and see films. So it's definitely, I mean, not every festival offers it, but if they do, and it's financially and budget and time-wise within your power to attend, do it i yeah. cannot recommend it honestly if you get that uh, a festival pass and it is a kind of access all areas type pass so if they are doing a networking event in a rooftop bar somewhere in town make sure you're in that rooftop bar even if you're only there for an hour just show your face so people know who you are um there are a bunch of filmmakers certainly in the uk they always see you at every single networking event and they'll go out of their way because maybe they have a bit of FOMO on their part, but also it's quite it's quite good to get your name out there. Remember, you are a walking business card. Yeah. So um, yeah, just always go. And if you are selected, don't let those moments pass. Uh, try and do the Q and A's. Try and you know we've had a filmmaker filmmakers before in the past that are involved in panels. You know, talking about producing or talking about you know, directing or writing. So, you know, it may feel like you don't belong in that crowd, but you totally do. And Uh, yeah, and watch films. Like, I think, especially if you're a short filmmaker, you can go and see a short program and see sometimes up to 12 films in, mm. you know, 90 minutes. And I, I kind of feel that the filmmakers that don't quite understand why their film isn't getting selected, perhaps haven't quite thought about how their film is curated because it's not just about the individual film, it's about the films that sit around it's, you. It's always good to see what pips you to the post. Yeah. It's always good to see, like you might see another film that's very similar to yours. I did speak to, um, uh, I was actually, I was listening to a talk actually, it was um, from uh, someone that works at Seattle Film Festival. And um, they were talking about like an event that happened like uh, involving a reservoir or something like that, that was in the news. And you can set your watch by it, which is like, there were suddenly got six documentaries about the same thing. And obviously they have to pick just, you know, if, if they like the topic to begin with, 
if they do, they have to pick kind of just one and one that works with that audience in that area. And it might be the same six that do the round with you every inch of the way. Yeah. And others will pick you to post because one might be more funny than the other. One might be more investigative. I can't talk this evening. Investigative. <laughs> you blame, have been drinking. I, I blame the jet lag. <laughs> um, and, um, and like literally they'll be going like to lengths to pick ones that suit their audience. So I think that... Um, yeah, like it's always always worth knowing what you're up against on the circuit. But also, if you do attend, you might have an opportunity to speak to programmers. Mm. And if they said yes or no to your film, you can talk more about it. And some of the nicest, honest, most honest people you'll meet are the programmers out there because they genuinely love film. Mm. And see everything as experience and not finite. You know, mm. if you get turned down by a festival, yeah, but so did you and everyone else. Like, but, it's not, it doesn't, again, it doesn't mean you're a bad filmmaker. I mean, and we know it's hard. We, we watched the, the LGBTQ block at Palm Springs Shorts Fest. And I imagine, you know, if I was a filmmaker that didn't get selected for that and I was disgruntled, all I've had to have done was sat down in that screening and watched that audience have an electric time for 90 minutes and every film was great yeah. all the way through the program <laughs> and realised that actually the programmers did their job and actually, you know, it was maybe right in the end that my film wasn't selected. They did the right call. Yeah. Make sure to check out drinkingwithcreatives.com where you can support us by contributing to our Patreon. And don't forget to subscribe and download on your preferred platform. I hope you enjoyed and we'll see you next time.